0: Dr. Asim Malotra, I, I said that right, I think. I think I've I said, said that it. right. I just said yeah. that with a very Australian accent, but yeah. um, welcome to Canberra. And welcome to you know, the, the uh, I suppose the uh, you know strange environment that this building provides. I don't know if you can sense it when you walk around, but it's a it's a very closed shop here. And getting people to listen is important. And politicians like to talk, like I'm doing now. They don't like to listen, so it's great to have you here. <laughs> it's great to have you here, and it's great to have you talking. You just gave a really you know impressive talk to a group of politicians uh, across the way here, and it was well received. But um, for those people who don't know your background, you want to just give a little snapshot
1: yeah no thanks thanks for having me here alex it's great to be it's my fourth trip to australia but my very first in canberra certainly the first time i've been in the australian parliament i'll be honest I'll be, i was quite impressed actually with uh, the amount of space and the cleanliness <laughs> and, the, and the good canteen here as well um definitely better in some ways than the uk parliament but, uh, but yeah very different um yeah so i'm a consultant cardiologist uh i've been a qualified doctor now for more than 20 years um I originally subspecialized in interventional cardiology, which is uh, for lay people, keyhole heart surgery, stents, that kind of thing. And then I've shifted in the last, probably slowly over the last five to 10 years more towards prevention, um, because I think that's where we need to put more resources in terms of managing the healthcare systems and also population health. Uh, and in that process, uh, two big areas that I've been Campaigning on is highlighting the harms of poor diet and how that can influence, obviously, heart disease and all these other chronic conditions we're having to, we're struggling to to manage. But also linked to that is an overmedicated population, mm. too much medicine. Yeah. that's actually the the title of the campaign started by the British Medical Journal, in 2012. So that really sums up pretty much um, me. Uh, I still see patients. Uh, my patients inform me, um, and uh, you know through my advocacy work, I'm always thinking about that patient in a consultation room. How can I be the best possible doctor I can be for that patient?
0: And do you see a lot of correlation between the British and the Australian systems from what you're seeing so far? I mean, it's hard to tell from the outside, but...
1: Yeah, I think so. Yeah, quite hmm. similar uh, yeah. in many ways. Um, I wouldn't say necessarily there are some differences, certainly in terms of uh, the response to COVID, which I'm sure we'll get into. <laughs> but uh, yes, very similar. In fact, I actually did... Uh, my first trip to Australia was in 2000, when I, in fact, 2001, early 2001, um, in I went to Edinburgh Medical School, and in the final year of medical school, you are allowed to go uh, away for four months uh, anywhere in the world to see how medicine is practiced in a different country. And I chose I did two months in Delhi, India, where I was originally born, and then two months in Sydney, Australia. So I had two months actually working in and, and seeing as a, as a medical student how, and it was I was very impressed with it all. I was very impressed with it. I think the one thing I would say, and that was then. I remember thinking actually the resources and the amount of doctors you have uh, in terms of uh, ratios to patients was better. You know, RNHS traditionally has had the highest; um, it has the highest number of patients per doctor in terms of ratio in the whole of Europe. So, in in some senses, that isn't ideal because mm-hmm. that means a lot of pressure on the system. From an from an point of view, as a doctor. You know, um, it's very intense and you learn a lot in a probably a shorter space of time compared to other countries in the Western
0: world. And I mean, you know, it does beg the question. I mean, you've you've a bit of a history, I suppose, of questioning some of the stuff that we're seeing out of Big Pharma. And of course, you have a long history with the sugar campaign and also with the statin debate that went on in yeah. in the UK. And I, I listened to you on Joe Rogan talking about that in length. It was really interesting to hear that, that background and how it sort of molded you into the person you're here today, I suppose. So... You tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. I mean, first and foremost, I'm a cardiologist. So I'm interested in heart disease.
1: Mm. And uh, I tried to investigate really the root causes of heart, heart disease and why we had not been making the inroads we should have done over several decades. And in my investigation and through my research, I basically discovered that a lot of the uh, science around cholesterol and its role in heart disease was, was flawed. And then it was worsened by commercial influence, drugs that were developed to lower cholesterol, et cetera. And that took me down a journey where I realized that most people taking statins weren't getting benefits, but it wasn't just about that. They weren't being told about the uh, absolute benefits of statins. Mm. And that comes down to informed consent and ethical evidence-based medical practice. Yeah. And I think that was something that you know was, was, was lacking. So I tried to get that information out through medical journals, through newspaper articles, just to try and evolve the management of heart disease, so we were doing things better and more
0: ethically, and that's really what I've been doing. And are you noticing? I mean, there's obviously a um, you know this is this is a big uh, big involved industry now. Big yeah. pharma is yeah. a big uh, you know it's been described as the medical industrial complex in a yeah. sense. Um, I'm really interested in that interplay between the journals, the media, and the big pharmaceutical companies as well, and uh, what, you know what that means and how it looks and. It, it, has that changed over the years? Do you think, or is that a new material fact? This kind of almost, you know, closed shop approach to uh, uh, to, to 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 medicine with big pharma. I mean, is, is is it something new? We've we've seen various scandals, if you like, Viox and others along the way. But it, yeah. it feels like it reached its apex in the last yeah. couple of years.
1: No, I think yeah, you're right. What we describe it as really is a corporate capture of medicine and public health. So what many people and most doctors aren't aware of um, is that over time. And you can actually link this back probably to economic policies in the 1980s that were promulgated by the likes of Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher, in the US and UK respectively, have meant that big multinational corporations, in particular big pharma, have had more and more both visible and invisible unchecked power. So, when you look at medicine, for example, you know we now have a situation where most of the funding to academic institutions when it comes to medical research, comes from the pharmaceutical industry. It didn't used to be that like that in the 80s. It was a minority of the funding. Most of it was publicly funded or government funding. And the issue of medical journals. Again, medical journals, most of the high-impact journals rely on funding from pharma, or they certainly profit from the funding from pharma for advertising. And also something called paying for reprints of articles. So if the drug industry a study produced certain conclusions on a new drug and its benefits... They will publish it in a medical journal and then they will pay the journal for reprints of those articles, which is then used as marketing material. So drug reps will go right with these hard copies. And then as, for us as doctors, most doctors don't know this, we then utilize that information that's published in the journal and we perceive it. And I was one of these people for a long time as gospel truth. And over time, I've come to realize that, you know, most of that uh, published research is at uh, some degree misleading. Often it's completely false. And then that biases the decision making when it comes to clinical decisions in the consultation with doctors and patients. So I look at the big picture and I look at the, the smaller picture, what's going on in the consultation room, and how does what's going on in the wider world influence what happens to these patients? And the reality, unfortunately, Alex, is we're in many countries around the world, I'm sure Australia's are probably in there as well, our health is actually not getting better, it's getting worse. You know, the obesity epidemic is one issue. We've now got stalling life expectancy in the UK since 2010. We've got more people living with chronic disease, which means people are getting sicker. The US has lost two years off of their life expectancy. It basically means health is getting worse. So the question is why? What role have the medical profession got to play in that? And for me, a big component of that is that we are not actually adhering to the principles of ethical evidence-based medical practice, making clinical decisions on unbiased information that benefits patients. And some of it also is, again, socially determined, the wider food environment, how the food industry like tobacco manipulate information, how they target children with advertising of junk food, how they even manage to be, uh, convince people to eat foods that they market as healthy, which are actually having the opposite effect on your health.
0: And and, and you talk it's, it's it's actually quite phenomenal, but not unexpected in many ways, I suppose. But if you look at, I'm interested in that the, the medical journal, um, you know, dynamic because you know you hear about some of these names and they're, they're you know you, you put them on this high level, you know, the New England Journal, and, and not naming any in particular, but yeah. the studies that come out. One of the great criticisms during COVID was those that were. Putting the studies out, we're never getting access to the raw data. You know, in terms of the statistical data that was coming out, the testing originally done by some of the pharmaceutical companies, is that an endemic problem with the journals? I mean, you say they're not, they're, they're not repeating, or perhaps not um, given access to all the information before yes. before they before they come to a conclusion. Absolutely. So what happens is this is the process people need to understand. So, and
1: this is, in my view, unethical and, and undemocratic as well, because I think when most people are told what I'm about to tell you they would be probably either shocked by it, or at the very least, they'll say this is unacceptable. Mm. Drug companies do most of the clinical research now. That influences guidelines on around the world on drugs that get approved for use in the population. <laughs> they conduct the re- they design the trials themselves. <laughs> they do their own analysis. Um, they then will come to conclusions that. Almost invariably are beneficial for their corporate interests. So they're there just to make profit. You've got to remember that, right? You've got to start from that position that these companies' primary legal obligation is to make profit for their shareholders. And what happens is they then, in those trials, we call the highest level, quality level of evidence in medicine is called the randomized control trial, double blinded randomized control trial, where you, you get as close as possible to showing that there is a benefit of an intervention. In those trials, often they can be tens of thousands of pages long. They then submit them to the regulator. The regulator often doesn't do due diligence in looking at all this raw data properly, which is kept commercially confidential anyway. With, from you know, uh, the drug industries are able to keep this data commercially confidential, and they rely on the summary results quite often of the pharmaceutical industry. Which people think that's a bit strange because uh, you know what makes it worse, Alex, which I've been pointing out here in Australia, is that the regulators themselves, many of the big regulators around the world. Take considerable amounts of their own funding from pharma. So, an investigation in the BMJ in 2022, actually done by an Australian, brilliant Australian investigative medical journalist, Marianne De revealed that 65% of the funding of the FDA in the US comes from pharma, 86% of the MHRA in the UK comes from pharma. But to top the lot, in your country, Australia, the TGA, gets 96% of its funding from pharma. Now, I'm not saying that those people who are, those regulators are deliberately malicious or doing things for the purposes of making money and deceiving people. But at the very least, what it does is it introduces a significant conflict of interest or bias in their decision-making process. Mm-hmm. And it isn't just about the fact that they are taking user fees for uh, you know for evaluating the research that are being sent by pharma on drugs. What happens quite often it's actually very well documented. Is many of the senior people in these panels, when they leave their roles as regulators, they get very lucrative jobs with the drug industry and they get paid a hell of a lot more than they did in their role. So, so there is an incentive. It's listen, it's human nature. Mm. There is an incentive to be friendly to the industry, and that is a big problem because they they that shouldn't. You know, when you, when you look at the public and doctors want to be confident that the information that they're getting on the reliability and safety of effectiveness of their drug is, is free from these sorts of influences. And unfortunately, we know more than ever that it's not. And uh, it's time really to act on it. And, and, and we see that with all of the harm that's been done from an over not throwing the baby out of the bathwater mm-hmm. here, but even pre-pandemic, um, Alex, to give you one headline figure, people can dispute it, but at the very least it tells you it's a big issue. The third most common cause of death after heart disease and cancer globally now is prescribed medications, what your doctor prescribes for you, mainly because
0: of avoidable side effects. Yeah, I heard you say that the other day, and it's quite stunning and and uh, quite understandable when it's spelled out like that. One of the things that strikes me is how similarly we now act in this country, almost the smaller brother or sister, if you like, in many ways, of some of the bigger players like uh, you know the United Kingdom, the USA. Uh, the Five Eyes countries generally, and, and we we have a similar uh, uh, military pattern, we have a similar uh, approach to a lot of things, and that's in many ways good. How does that affect the role of uh, medical intervention? I mean, what, what we saw in, during COVID, I think, was a very similar uh, pattern, and is it simply the case that we are um, following in suit with the bigger boys from this country? You know, if the FDA says it's all right, we'll do it. If the NHS is doing it in, in the United Kingdom, we'll do it. It's a bit of a club
1: yeah I think so. Um, I mean I don't know exactly what happened in, in Australia with the TGA but I do know that certainly in South Africa where I was recently and I even spoke there in in their Parliament um, the regulator over there uh, basically had defaulted to what the FDA were telling them to do essentially. So I think there's I, I suspect that may have happened I don't know to some degree um, but it, but again I think related to your question, My understanding, certainly, and and I'm sure you have an idea about this as well, Alex, is that these multinational corporations themselves have become so powerful financially, you know, that their revenues and the amount of profits they make is is bigger than many, many governments across the world. And that's the problem. You see, you've got they've got too much power and their incentives are quite often, I I would argue, maybe more often than not, not aligned with what is what doctors and patients and public would think is ethical. Mm. And that means, especially when it comes to their health.
0: And that's a big, um, there's a big conflict there actually. And this, and this has been a problem for a while, as we say. So we're not, we're not we haven't touched on the issue of COVID in, the, in, that, in that period. This is, you know, obviously there were a lot of uh, questions about some of those uh, drugs, viotics we've talked about yeah. a little bit, but um Take us back to the beginning of COVID, sort of twenty twenty that that period. I mean, uh, it, it's it was a unsettling period for everyone, I think. Yeah. Um, but it certainly does set the framework for what happened after the event. The fear, the yeah, unrivalled publicity. Um, beginning of twenty twenty. Where was your mindset on on what was happening? Listen, me, At the very beginning,
1: like everybody else, uncertain what was going on, fearful. Mm-hmm. We were seeing all these, you know, media stories coming out of China, Italy, you know, um, hospitals apparently overrun at that point, um, people dying. And I think, you know, most of us weren't really sure what we were dealing with. And probably looking back now, had a grossly exaggerated fear of what COVID was going to do to the extent, in fact, um, one survey in America early on revealed that 50% of Americans thought their risk of being hospitalized with COVID was 50%. I mean, that's massive. I mean, that's crazy figures. What, was, what was the real figure? Oh, the real figure was way less than 1%. In fact, actually, I published in my article, we did an analysis looking. There was a publication, and I then did a more detailed analysis on this which looked at the hospitalizations during the first strain. This is important because this is the worst stage of COVID. This isn't where it is now, thank God. But the worst stage of COVID, if you were a middle-aged person, say in your 50s, what was your risk of being hospitalized with COVID? And what was interesting, this relates to where I then, my journey in this this process early on, was if you were a healthy person in terms of you were a non-smoker, didn't over-consume alcohol, um, you were, had a normal body mass index and you were in socioeconomic class one, so you were in the highest socioeconomic class, your risk of being hospitalized with COVID was one in 1,500, about one in 1,500 and something. If you were in the lower socioeconomic class and you were a smoker and you were obese and you were sedentary, your risk of being hospitalized was almost four to five fold higher. So about one in 300 and something. But still then... Mm. Even in the worst case scenario for a middle-aged person during the Wuhan strain, your risk of hospitalization is 1 in 300. People were thinking it was more like 1 in 2 or 50%. There's a massive difference there. That's important as well, um, Alex, as I mentioned obviously my, in my lecture, to just uh, understand with empathy that the exaggerated fear meant also people were less likely to uh, engage in critical thinking right? because of fear, um, more likely to be compliant with their government right? Not necessarily always a bad thing, but I think in some cases certainly it can be a bad thing, yeah. right? Uh, I want to trust my government. Mm. You know, I want to, I, I genuinely am that kind of person. I mm. want the government to do the right thing and look after their population. So uh, that's that's an unfortunate side effect of it all. And of course, fear anyway. Living in fear is not healthy. Mm. Certainly, it has to be a proportionate fear, but not an exaggerated fear. Mm. Because fear itself, I know that as a cardiologist, stress and fear kills people. Right. It actually damages the immune system as well. So paradoxically, okay the exaggerated fear probably made people more sick from COVID as well. Mm. Mm. So you've got all that thrown in. And then for me then, once I'd understood, one of the first things I did is I looked at the first publication, the data coming from Italy in terms of who was dying, how old were they, were there any associated conditions? And the first thing, and I will never forget this, the average age of death from Italy during the first wave of COVID was 81. And the average number of comorbidities in terms of conditions that those people had was 2.7, right? When you average it out, almost three chronic conditions, high blood pressure, type 2 diabetes, for example, um, heart disease. That's my area. So I figured out quite quickly, and there were some publications coming out showing that once you exclude the elderly, and you know, vulnerable elderly in particular, not all elderly, vulnerable elderly, your risk of dying from COVID or being hospitalised was was strongly associated with excess body fat and obesity. Mm-hmm. So very early on, and when I realised that was the case, and it was quite clear on the data, I said, this is the time government should be telling their populations While there are lockdowns, whether you believed in lockdowns at the beginning or not, or whatever else, is to eat healthy. Because I know as a cardiologist from my previous research that dietary changes can massively improve risk factors Mm. for heart disease, which are also linked to COVID infection and severity, within just 21 days of changing diets. 21 days, not months and years. 21 days. And in all of that, of course, we talk about vitamin D and all these things that didn't get, you know. So I started campaigning, actually, at the beginning to highlight this. And this was, I remember, in fact, I think it was March or April 2020, I went on Sky News, because I have a lot of interaction with media. And I know across all channels, and I've written for every newspaper, I write medical journals. So I got on Sky News. And I remember telling Steve Dixon, who was a presenter, and he was on my side, I said, explained it all to him. And he was totally with me on it. But it's one news story at one time, it wasn't printed in the press. And I kept hammering this message again and again and again and then Boris got sick and went to hospital Mm. and I straight away thought oh look Boris is overweight it's probably played a role I used to be an advisor to London food board when Boris was mayor and I remember Rosie Boycott who was head of the food board came to me one day and she said I see him for several years ago I'm really worried about Boris I said why is this you know he's going around on his Boris bike everywhere but he doesn't look wow he's really overweight can you have a chat with him? I said, sure. I never got to have that chat with him at the time. But I said, you know, fine, let me have a chat with him. I to him that he needs to probably cut his sugar and, you know, explain all that to him and he can get healthier. So when he got admitted to hospital, he'd already come out, I think, not long before that saying he was 18 to 20 stone. So I knew that he was overweight. And then I mentioned it after he came out of hospital on um, in an article I wrote for The Telegraph. It became a, it was featured on the front page. Then I was on Good Morning Britain BBC talking about it. And suddenly, front page, headlines in The Times, um, Boris's weight linked to his COVID hospital admission luckily boris accepted it actually and and, and matt hancock then contacted me and asking me to ask me to advise him on the links and he was secretary for health at the time on the links between covid and obesity and i wrote to him i was very clear with him because i'd spoken in parliament a year before and met matt around reversal of type 2 diabetes with low carb diets so and he in fact apparently lost weight on following my diet plan two stones so he kind of trusted me on these things um and then he and i said to him listen Ultra processed food is a major issue around the world. Half of the calories in the British diet, ultra processed food. I suspect it might be similar to Australia. Yeah. Comes out of a packet, has five ingredients. Don't eat it. That's, that's my advice. Yeah, but that's half of the diet for a lot of people. Yeah, um, and uh, you should learn lessons from how we tackle tobacco, and apply that to, you know, regulatory change here in the UK regarding ultra processed foods. And I said to them, very rapidly, you'd see an improvement in population health. And even if there wasn't that much of a big impact in the short term, which there would be, I said, Matt, you know, COVID is a fast pandemic that exploited a slow pandemic of chronic disease. Yeah. And there may be another, who knows when the next pandemic's going to happen, if one, God forbid, it doesn't happen anytime soon, but if it does, if the population already healthier, their baseline health is already better you don't even have to even think about things like lockdown yeah. because you know, people's immunity would be probably better, et cetera. And then we would deal with it better and be less, you know, less off. So that's what I said to him. And he kind of acknowledged it and there was a news story on it. Uh, and then I think the Times newspaper a couple of months, a few months later, did a front page saying Boris's drive to, you know, wage a war on fat in terms of obesity, you know, linked to what I'd been doing. But uh, yeah, we haven't made much progress, unfortunately, in terms of policy change yet.
0: As for all the time and energy, that's the stuff that doesn't uh, doesn't affect the shareholders' bottom line, I no. suppose. So so it's of uh, of less perhaps uh, interest, which is a shame. But um, you, you you clearly went on a bit of a journey with uh, the COVID vaccination, yeah. Uh, and yes. and it's and it's hard. I, I mean, it's hard for doctors in particular. It's been very hard for doctors in this country because yeah. they've been. Uh, Set upon by the medical regulator, APRA, and uh, and uh, you know, and and also just the community generally. But um, it's a pretty big deal for someone you know who's an eminent cardiologist to take that plunge. What did that look like, and where did it start?
1: Yeah, I mean, to be honest, in some ways, for me, it was easier for me to come out and say we've got it wrong and we we should change our minds on this because I'd been doing that throughout my career anyway.
0: Yeah. (laughs) So to some
1: degree, I was a little bit desensitized. I wasn't worried about that, and also. Part of being a good doctor, Alex, is you have to, when the evidence changes, it's your duty to change with the evidence. Mm. You can't be stuck in your old ways. And also, patients want you to be honest. And, mm. and we know that traditionally, evidence evolves in medicine quite quickly. I always say medicine isn't an exact science. It's an applied science. Mm. It's more of an art. It's a science of human beings. And it's constantly evolving and changing. So we have to be open to that. So I was always open to that. But I never expected this to be the case with a vaccine because I have placed traditional vaccines in a very special category. Mm. of of being safe and effective. Mm. just perspective for people here, traditional vaccines, serious adverse event rates are thought to be about one in a million. Right? So very, very rare. And therefore, fair to call them safe and effective. And that's where I was. Um, And therefore, I took two doses of the vaccine, initially thinking I'm going to protect my patients. Went to Good Morning Britain in February 2021 to help tackle vaccine hesitancy and people from ethnic minority backgrounds who were high risk. That's at that stage we were only when we were rolling at the beginning, I don't know if you remember this, but there was only the, the 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 thought making, the thought processes from policymakers was we are only going to offer this to people at high risk. Mm-hmm. Right. That's how it started. So that's where I was. And then the evidence started to accumulate and change over time. One of the things when I look back not at the time but several months later was my my father who was vice president of the BMA medical association a retired gp he suffered and what at the time was an unexplained cardiac arrest he was a very fit man and used cardiac history his post-mortem findings at the time didn't make sense because he had two severe narrows of his art of his three of his major coronary arteries i thought that doesn't make any sense how's that happen i don't get it and then later on evidence started to come out it's now been is very strong evidence now showing that the mrna vaccines in particular he had two doses of pfizer six months earlier causes an acceleration of heart disease. If you've got something mild and mild throwing that isn't going to give you a problem, say let's just say, for example, for 30 years, suddenly in six months it's giving you a heart attack. That's bad. Yeah. And that's when I started to really look into this in more depth. And when I did and realized that it was a really bad situation, I then campaigned um, after, first of all, helping to overturn vaccine mandates for healthcare workers in the UK that was introduced you know, they were going to introduce that and make it into legislation. And I helped campaign to overturn it through private conversations that got through Sajid Javid and also going on mainstream media about it. Um, but then I published a paper in the Journal of Insta Resistance at the end of 2022 September, where we'd done a risk-benefit analysis, I had done one, peer-reviewed, and very rigorously peer-reviewed, to show that certainly at that stage, for the overwhelming majority of people, the vaccine was going to do more harm than good from the beginning. Mm-hmm. And, and that is extraordinary, Alex, for people to hear for the mm-hmm. first time because... The way we know that is on the reanalysis of Pfizer and Moderna's own trials by some of the world's most eminent scientists independent of industry interests and they found from the very beginning you were more likely to suffer serious harm from the vaccine than you were to benefit from it in terms of the people who were in the trial who had the vaccine had a higher rate of serious adverse events from the vaccine that means hospitalization disability life-changing event of a rate of around 1 in 800 versus uh, there were that was a higher risk than you were to be hospitalised with COVID. So for me, that means if it was independently evaluated properly from the beginning, it probably would never have been approved for use in
0: a single human being. Mm. And we have this provisional uh, approval system here in Australia. I assume there's something similar in the UK and my understanding was broadly pitched originally the fast-track cancer drugs, which we can accept. You know, people sometimes don't have the time yeah. to wait for that, so got it. Yeah. Uh, but in this case, um, the provisional approval was given, as you say, what we now know, and we've seen reams of documents from Pfizer. There was the, the 3,500 uh, pages that were released yeah. showing all sorts of things that are probably outside yes. the lane here, a little bit on fertility and other you know sure. problems, but the heart issues being the main one. Um, it, it's, uh, you know, it is ultimately, I think, very... Um, difficult for doctors. One of the things I had been very, very disappointed with in, in in Australia has been the lack of medical um, pushback, but I understand that because there was a lot of concern over being the ones that that's, that's set up. Yeah. Was that regulatory framework similar in the United Kingdom? And does, does speaking out against this regime, does, the vaccine regime, does that... Um, you know, there's that that cause you, you've had you've had uh, you know problems with uh, you know regulators and name yeah. calling and presumably oh, yeah. family and friends as well. Yeah, absolutely. So um,
1: it's a similar problem across the whole world. I think Australia, unfortunately, from what I could see, which horrified me, I think was much more draconian in the sense that I can still speak out, mm. I can still ask a question, and of course, there's potential. Pushback and referrals to regulators, etc., and, and and that's all happened with me. Although Touchwood, luckily, I'm fine mm. so far. Partly because a lot of my work has been with the very people who are part of those panels. That I've published with some of these people. They know that I come from an ethical perspective, mm. and even if they may not agree with me, they probably know that I'm making le- some legitimate arguments that they can't really, well, you know, cannot really uh, rebut in a strong enough way. So I suspect that's some of it. But certainly here it wasn't just the fact that doctors and nurses lost their jobs if they didn't have the vaccine. It was also, uh, because, um, it, the, the, if a doctor spoke out, mm. they were faced with the possibility of almost an immediate suspension of their license pending an investigation, which made it much harder for doctors to speak out and that yeah. suppress the information more from the population. Mm. And therefore many people are in this living in this bubble of, uh, an indoctrination that the vaccine is safe and effective. And, uh, the indoctrination is so deep, Alex, that even educated people think they're being objective.
0: Yeah, I mean, this is the thing that I find staggering. Now, even to this day, there are GPs and doctors that I know that are still recommending, you know, that people go out, you know, you know, have you had your, are you up to date? In fact, uh, uh, health departments are still encouraging people to get their boosters at this point. Now... That doesn't make any sense in the scope of what you know and, you know, what I know a little bit about. But yep. clearly there has been a uh, an impact on doctors, you know, potentially even just the person on the street. It's got to be... Something at play there that's different. The media has to play a big role in that, I think. And um you know, I think you spoke uh, when you've spoken about it before about the uh, the impact of doctors getting a lot of their information straight from the media, and and Absolutely. that that is a that is a phenomenal thing. I, I,
1: yeah, the level of willful blindness here is so massive in terms of the harms of the vaccine, like the lack of acknowledgement of the harms of the vaccine, and willful blindness let's just define it. So. We're all capable of it. Mm. Different circumstances. It's when human beings turn a blind eye to the truth, they right. bury their head in the sand, in order to feel safe, avoid conflict, reduce anxiety, and protect prestigious reputations. When we say reduce anxiety, we also got to acknowledge that the, the state is that actually for a lot of people, changing one's mind can be very emotionally terrifying. Yeah, right. So we've got to acknowledge all of that stuff mm-hmm. to understand why this behavior is there. But it's been so bad that recently in the UK there was a case which was reported on BBC News. Where a young um, uh, uh, he was a psychotherapist, had a doctorate in psychotherapy, thirty-two year old mm. guy, he basically died. I think about a week or two after having, I think, it was the Astrazeneca vaccine uh, from a clot in the brain. The death certificate put natural causes. Mm. His wife challenged it, went to coroner's court, and eventually they said, "No, this was a vaccine." Yeah, but can you imagine that? they put natural causes of a guy that died at the age of 32 was healthy. Yeah. And there was a clear temporal relationship with the vaccine. Mm. But that tells you the willful, the, that they, they, they just don't want to accept or acknowledge. Because one, I was kind of understood that. I was in that mm. position for a while thinking yeah. vaccines are safe and effective. But the yeah. problem now, Alex, what makes it worse? Okay, there were cock-ups. Mistakes were made. Most people don't do the right thing. We've got all of this pharma influence behind the scenes. But now the evidence is there and it's been there for such a long time. The regulators should be acting on it
0: what breaks the dam on this that because we've seen we've seen there's evidence there's evidence yeah. there that these are not safe nor yeah. effective yeah. um we've seen people speak out is yeah. it a, is it a um, a groundswell of people i heard you talking on joe rogan's podcast about the you know the kind of uh, the birds on a wire effect when we all when one jump we all jump yes. uh hey, do you think that's getting closer or yeah. yeah i do i think that one of the bits of
1: evidence to suggest that we're getting closer is the lack of uptake when people have been recommended boosters, we saw it in the UK, we seeing it in the US. I suspect it's probably happening similar here to some mm. degree where public are ignoring being told through text messages or public health messaging that they should get vaccines and it's very, very low, it's way less than 10%. <laughs> that for me is a marker now that people, to some degree, it's because they have lost trust and mm. they know that what they were told was, was misleading and wasn't true at the beginning. And that's a problem. The way we handle it is we just... We handle it with, the, with just reiterating the facts. But also I think it's important to have dialogue and empathize with those people that don't have the similar view to us yet because those people are well-intentioned. And a lot of them, as you know, Alex are our friends and family members. I've, you know, I've fallen out or had issues or even had people become cold with me who are people who I care about deeply mm. purely because of this issue. And it's not that they're sitting there and listening to me and then rebutting the arguments with, in an irrational evidence-based way. They just don't want to talk about it. Or this is some crazy anti-vax conspiracy theory. Right. So this is a marker of willful blindness. One thing I found, certainly when I give my advocacy and I give my talks, and I'm always open to debate and discussion, is that when I present the information in the way where we look at psychological barriers and then the facts, wherever I've been around the world, even in parliaments, people are turned. Mm-hmm. So we can do it. It's harder. It's harder. We just need to keep trying.
0: Yeah, and and you spoke about this being uh, more of an object of psychology over science, if you like, and and there is that, isn't there? I mean, as time goes on perhaps and the – you know, the, the fear drops uh, and that, that sort of culture of fear that we had drops. Perhaps that becomes more, yes. uh, people become more um, oh, hopeful. But, I mean, you can well imagine that there are people that are worried, of course, having been through a regime of these injections and don't want to hear it. That's probably part of it as well. Um, but you, you've spoken before, and, and, of course, we don't want names, but the, the, the number, and, I, and I've got them as well, by the way, people who are quite well known that have pro- approached me, and and you've said that as well, who've had problems but still won't make that next step do, do you get the sense that we're getting close to you know to some some people because because of course i can understand the reasons why they don't because every time somebody does do this like yourself, cell they get, attacked, or they get attacked i quite like it uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean yeah. i'm happy i yeah you gotta yeah. have a thick skin you know you
1: have a thick skin. Well, well that's you know this is one of i've got many inspirations throughout my life but one of them i learned a lot from Mark gandhi and he says mm. you know first they ignore you mm. then they laugh at you then they fight you then you win yeah so if you're getting attacked, you're over the target. You're yeah, making progress. Yeah. I see that as a sign of progress, and that's happened. And that happened to me uh, early on in t- uh, this year when I went on the BBC because they asked me about statins, and I started talking about the excess deaths likely la- related to the vaccine. The, and it, you know, had a big impact because it went viral. Had like t- almost 25 million views. Um, there was an immediate backlash from the Guardian and the Times, mm-hmm. you know, attacking me. And I was like, yes, that's when you know you're on. That the means we're on. Yeah, bring yeah. it on. Yeah, bring it yeah. on. I like that too. <laughs> <laughs> i mean the other thing as well alex if you don't mind me mentioning this as well so in terms of the yes there are many i have many high profile people politicians celebrities that are on my side but mm. they're afraid to speak up right. but as you said before it's about getting them together um and trying to encourage them to all come out at the same time they yeah. can't all be you know if you it's much harder to attack six people than it is to attack one person the, uh... so, I, so i think if that's something we're trying i'm trying to encourage more yeah. people to speak out who understand what's going on but one of the things I found most extraordinary as well, which is very, it was very upsetting, is that the evidence became quite clear that natural immunity was very powerful in mm. the sense that your risk of death from reinfection of COVID, if you already had COVID, was almost zero. Almost zero. Mm. Really strongly powerful. But what's worse, Alex, is if you've already got natural immunity and you have the vaccine, We've got data showing at least a threefold increase in side effects, and mm. many of those side effects are going to be serious. Mm. So the worst possible thing you can do, I mean, I would say, you know, it isn't deliberate, but I would use the word criminal mm. in an abstract sense, is to recommend people to have the vaccine when they've already got natural immunity. Mm. And something that really, and I hope you don't mind me saying this, this is my personal view. I was asked when Boris got sick, they asked me for an opinion. The media went to me, what's happening there? When Donald Trump got COVID and was going to hospital, Sky News, the me- media came to me, Dr. Mhachar, what do you think is going on here? Um, You know, when Prince Philip was admitted to hospital, they the media came to me and the BBC, Dr. Mhachar, because it was something to do with his heart, what's going on, what do you think is going on here? And... I say this because also, um, from a personal perspective, I'm a huge cricket fan. I almost had to choose between cricket and medicine in my career. And I idolized, I hope you don't mind me using this I just word, I idolized Shane Warne, mm. right? I was inspired to become a leg spinner because of Shane Warne. I almost became a cricketer <laughs> professionally as I went down the route because of Shane Warne. Mm. When I heard of his cardiac arrest, I was devastated. But the first thing by that stage, when I knew what was going on with these vaccines, the first thing that came to my mind is I thought there is likely to, have the vaccine is likely to have played a role in his yeah. death until proven otherwise, because it doesn't make sense. They can say, yeah, he was overweight and I know he had COVID and I get all that. Mm. But if he had a booster after having COVID, mm. which is what I hear happened, mm. that for me is just, it's absolutely um, awful. Yeah. That should not have been advised to him. I'm sure it was in, with the best of intentions and for someone like him who isn't you know he wasn't by all of me, fine he wasn't the he wasn't the fittest guy mm. in the world but he was pretty fit. i mean this guy mm. was playing ipl cricket mm. not that long before you know fine he was a bit overweight and you know all that kind of stuff but as a cardiologist with all of my extensive experience you don't see people like him in their early 50s having cardiac arrest purely
0: because of his lifestyle it's very unusual I mean, it does bring you to another point about that. I mean, we see these all the time now, the concept of died suddenly. And there's, uh, you know, there, there is, uh, I think, enormous um, conjecture about people that do die. We've had people, you know, soccer players dropping dead on field. It's hard to know, uh, you know, what's confirmation bias sometimes when you're watching this stuff. Sometimes you, you know, you take the view that you're seeing things that you might otherwise not. Yeah. Uh, but there is clearly. Um, and in my mind, at least an unusual rise in young people having problems. Yep. Uh, there's also uh, an incredible increase in excess death rates in this country. It's been hovering until very recently, hovering around about the 16 or 17 percent over the five year baseline average is down to about nine or 10 now. But that's yep. still, you know, something like 30, 35,000 Australians that are dead every year for the last two years that wouldn't have been pre-COVID, there are all these explanations about people being sedentary now, locked up, change of diet, alcoholism. But your view on the excess death rates, uh, it seems to marry up.
1: Yeah, it's it's, it's an important point you raise, Alex, because heart disease is multifactorial. Mm. So it's likely they've all played a role, for sure. Even with lockdowns at the beginning, I predicted before the vaccine, I said, I think we're going to see increases in heart attacks and strokes and all that. I predicted that because we know other data from war zones communities or countries that have experienced war heart attacks increased for several years afterwards because of the severe stress mm. whether this was the same stress as people being in war or not is debatable probably not to that level but it was definitely an extra stress on the population for yeah. sure psychological stress so that would have played a role for sure but actually when you look at the level of evidence and the quality of evidence pointing to serious adverse effects and uh and heart disease and heart attacks it's so strong that it has to have played a significant role. Hmm. Is it number one? I can't be sure. One person who has done his own analysis is a very uh, eminent professor of risk and statistics called Norman Fenton in the UK. And he estimated in the UK, 50% of the excess deaths are directly and indirectly because of the
0: COVID vaccines. Yeah.
1: That's huge.
0: So it's likely up there for sure. And is it likely that the the numbers might even be? I mean, obviously deaths are very finite and recordable. Yeah. but uh, there are uh, long-standing criticisms of the uh, adverse reaction reporting. So if, yes, I mean these are potentially likely to be longer-term yeah. consequences that drift on for years. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, what evidence are we seeing of uh, you know of of underreporting of adverse? Events? Yeah. So even before the vaccines reached. Really- interesting i looked into this so the regulatory
1: bodies say that rep- what's reported when it comes to serious adverse events mm. by people by the public by doctors that go to yellow card scheme in the uk and something called the V-E- vaers in the us and i don't know what the name of your scheme is here probably something similar it's similar I imagine, yeah. it's usually an underestimate by tenfold Mm-hmm. So only ten percent of the true serious adverse events are reported. My dad had a cardiac arrest, which I in a peer-reviewed journal attributed to be likely because of the vaccine. Mm. I never reported it yeah right so it's it's likely a gross underestimate and mm. um, but the reporting we've already got is just through the roof. It's unprecedented. Mm-hmm. I found you know there's something else that happened in all of this which kind of sh- tells you how the left hand doesn't know what the right hand's doing sometimes the AstraZeneca vaccine was in effect. But it wasn't publicized in the way that it should have been, suspended in most European countries in the summer of 2021. And the media stories were something about, we, we won't use this one anymore, you can go for Pfizer because of, in quotes, rare blood clot. Mm. The yellow card re- reports in the UK, which I looked up and I wrote about even in my paper, revealed around 800,000 reports of adverse, some of them are going to be mild, but enough for people to report them, and some of them are going to be serious, of course. 800,000 adverse effects reported on the yellow card scheme after 9.7 million doses. It's almost 10%. And that is just Mm. extraordinary. They then, unbeknown to me, until I'd really looked into it and been alerted to this, used the AstraZeneca vaccine and still continue to use it under the name Covishield in India. Mm. And I went to India and I gave a, I went, on a bit of a speaking tour there and I was in the press over there and I said, actually, I'll put to the summer of 2021 the AstraZeneca vaccine when it comes to cardiovascular side effects, serious ones, it was worse than Pfizer. Mm. And that became a headline story over there. And it was it was awful. I was giving talks and lectures and I had widows coming up to me, um, nurses who'd lost their husbands mm. a few weeks after having AstraZeneca died and they're and they just crying. They suddenly realized, oh my God, mm. we now know it was likely the vaccine would never made sense to us. We're dealing with something truly... Horrific here, Alex. So let's not beat around the bush, but we have to we have to deal with it. It is what it is. We have to face it head on. Mm. We have to accept there will be some pushback. People have to be courageous enough to say, yes, okay, this is what happened. All of the things that happened, rushing things out, worry about the pandemic, exaggerated fear, misinformation. But we need to acknowledge it and then we need to say we're gonna do things now to help what we what I call the pandemic of the vaccine injured. It's massive, right? Do research on helping those people like get better. But also introduce this is where politicians come in Mm. policy changes to say we are going to do everything we can now moving forward so this never happens again.
0: Right. So what does that look like from your from your point of view?
1: I think the most the headline the the big um, overview on this issue is that we've got too many people with conflicts of interest, mainly financial, making decisions over health policy. Mm -hmm. So. Drug industry should be allowed to develop drugs, but they shouldn't be allowed to test them. They should be independently evaluated. The drug uh, drug uh, medical regulators, like the TGA in this country, should not be allowed to take any money from pharma. Right?
0: Interest is a huge bias,
1: and um, I think that would be a good start. To be perfectly honest, I think that would be a good start
0: it's a conundrum, isn't it? In on the one hand, um, the reason we have developments in drugs is because they're big companies, isn't it? I mean, we we have this kind of uneasy balance there, where uh, you know you're not going to get a mum and dad uh, shop on a high street developing a cure for cancer. You need that kind of infrastructure, but yet that drive for getting bigger and badder is actually the thing which is almost um, you know inf- influencing the industry to give us these sorts of results. Well,
1: well the system actually is discouraging industry to truly innovate. Mm. So the drug industry spend 20 times more on marketing now mm-hmm. than they do on basic science research of new molecular entities. And it translates into the fact that if you look at you know data from America, data from France, data from Canada, data from Europe, most of the drugs that have been approved by regulators, Alex, in the last two decades mm. have essentially been found to be copies of old ones.
0: Yeah. Mm. So then, this, is, this is changing a molecule, getting a new patent, percent, running it out again. Absolutely. Right. It's a
1: huge waste. Yeah. And we pay for it, the Mm. taxpayer. Mm. So think about that. So we need to change the system so they actually can start developing new, more effective drugs. But they're just exploiting the system that they have helped shape, which is now having a huge negative impact on society. So I say, certainly, I'm I'm with you. We don't want to throw the baby out of the bathwater because we do rely on some drugs, many drugs, and they're important. And they have, in many cases, important life-changing and life-saving effects, but the overall net effect
0: of the drug industry on society now, Alex,
1: in the last two decades is negative. Yeah,
0: I want to ask you a couple of questions just about the broader picture of uh, outside the scope of the medical uh, world because we had a pretty, you know, I think, draconian approach to COVID. You probably watched it on screens with the what happened in Melbourne, the overall lockdowns. Um, and, you know, a fairly robust regime of quarantine, home quarantine, medical quarantine, hotel quarantine. Um, how is that playing out in the UK? I know some in the US were looking at this and thinking, what's happened to Australia? What's going on here? That's how it felt from the inside. That's yeah. what it felt to me. It's one of the reasons why I, I you know, have taken such a line on this is it, it started to not feel like Australia anymore. Is that what was being portrayed overseas? Has it had a negative impact on Australia's uh um, I think the word image. the word was madness. Mm.
1: To be honest. Mm. I think most people looked at it and thought this is absolute madness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's
0: interesting. <laughs> I always ask people <laughs> overseas that because uh, well, I mean, one of the things that got attention,
1: interestingly as well, which we, which was um, a big story here, obviously, was what happens in Novak Djokovic. Yeah, this guy is fit and healthy as mm. you like, mm. lowest risk for COVID complications himself, has had COVID, mm. right, and. Therefore, he was at no risk to anybody, and we know the vaccines, by the way, weren't preventing infection or transmission for sure. But ironically, the more vaccines I have, the more likely you are to get COVID. Yeah. So it was actually having a negative efficacy effect. The last thing that you know, so glad that he stood his dug his heels in. The last thing that would have been, you know, he should have. He, to be honest, because he now had natural immunity, he would have massively increased his chances of an adverse effect. You know, and somebody made the comment the other day, and it was very interesting. I and mean, the the COVID vaccines, one of the things that they also do. As many people suffer from feeling, you know, many people have spoken to, they say they feel fatigued, they're not up to the same level that they were. (laughs) Actually, ironically, him not having the vaccine is probably, with many other tennis tennis players taking it, he's actually at a physical advantage over many tennis players, in my view, because he didn't have the vaccine. to think about that it's yeah. extraordinary
0: isn't it yeah, yeah it actually is yeah look he's uh, he's, he's we, we share an ethnic lineage uh, Novak and I so, oh, yeah, uh, so okay. there's, a, there's a bit of stubborn writing in the scene <laughs> yeah you. uh yeah that no, was it was an interesting time and uh, and, I, and and what has this done to your relationship with the media because obviously you were but you were and you probably still are I'm sure but you you were the go-to person for the Guardian the BBC there's this interesting dynamic where now the left have become the champions of, uh, of the corporate world in a sense, almost the establishment. Has it changed your interaction with, uh, with the media well, or the way they treat you?
1: Temporarily, maybe. I don't mm. know. It's difficult to know because I've been doing this for about 10 years and I always know mm. news cycles keep changing. Yeah. So I, I don't know. Uh, I have many friends who are very senior journalists across the media. BBC, ITV, The Guardian. The telegraph, you know, very senior people who are all kind of supportive. And many of them still come to me for medical advice, mm. but they trust me yeah. on yeah. this. But this is even bigger than one newspaper, mm. right? This is something else going on higher up. When I went on the BBC, it was very interesting uh, on BBC News. They asked me to talk about statins and, and heart disease and everything. And I thought it was very relevant. I didn't I didn't hijack it. I talked about the bigger issue here. What was interesting is, and this tells you a lot, the producer. That got me on immediately after I went on. They always do this if they thought they were, that was very interesting. Mm. That was a text, something along those lines. I then got asked straight away by another BBC News channel, a regional channel, can you come on our show? And I said, I'm really sorry. I had to see a patient at the time. I had a, a patient booked in, so I couldn't. I said, I've got to see a patient, I can't do it. So the immediate reaction from the journalist was like, Wow, this is really strong, which t- guess so it means they didn't really fully know what was, yeah. you know. And then three hours later, the same producer. Oh, you appear to have veered off the topic we originally discussed. Yeah, right. Someone's got to
0: her. Yeah. So, so I people that. need to know that. I hear that all the time. I've had journalists come to me. Privately, and say what I put into the system is not what comes out the other end of the pipe because middle management gets to it, the editorial position gets to it, and it changes. Yep. So, I, I, I and there are journalists that I know out there that would love to write this story. I don't yep. think they can, yep. and and I think that's part of the problem here is the the narrative's not there yet. Um, we saw this a little bit with tobacco. I don't think tobacco companies ever admitted nope. uh, liability for anything. Um, will we get to that point? Will it happen incrementally? I think we all believe that the, that the the judgment day is coming on this. Yeah. But if putting on your futurist hat, what does it look like? How, how, how are you going to predict this plays out? I think
1: when you speak the truth, you've got to let go of the outcome.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: <laughs> but if you were to ask me in my separate brain in mm. relation to the hat, mm. um, I think we're very close. Mm. We have to be Alex. Mm. The alternative is oblivion. Yeah. That's where we're heading. Yeah. yeah this is that we've got to fight for it. And, and I, I think we're very, very close. I think we're, that, that bubble is going to burst very
0: soon could happen tomorrow it could happen next week in a few months but we're very very close it feels to me to be upwards of the greatest medical scandal in human history 100% that's not that's not not underestimating yeah Yeah. greatest miscarriage of medical science we will see in our lifetime for sure yeah you're here in Australia for the AMPS tour, the Australian Medical Professionals Society uh, tour, and yep. you're going all around the country. Uh, you haven't been to South Australia yet, but obviously that'll be your favourite. Um, uh, uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm you, a red wine guy as well. Oh, there so. you go. Well, that, we'll make sure that happens when you come. <laughs> we looking forward to it. But um, what are you hoping to achieve on, uh, through the tour? Well, listen, I think
1: first and foremost, you know, uh, what I tell people is don't underestimate the power of the truth and the power of your own speech. And for me, it's just sharing my knowledge, creating a ripple effect, and and making sure that that you know, uh, spreads as far and wide. Speaking to you know most of these, uh, I was pleasantly surprised that most of these um, events, whether it's uh, Adelaide, Brisbane, Melbourne, there's one in Perth, are pretty much close to sell out if not sold out, which is great. So uh, I just want to spread spread the word, get people aware, let the ripple effect take you know take its course, and uh, and hopefully also get a little bit more mainstream media stuff as well, which has you know much bigger reach, um and and really to support AMPS. I mean the doctors who have, and the nurses and the healthcare workers have been part of AMPS. These are people that stood up for medical ethics. Um, you know they deserve a lot of credit and kudos. And I think the more doctors and healthcare workers that become aware of AMPS and want to join up, I think that's way forward you know we we need also an alternative to what's going on right now and my view is this is that standing up for doctors is not different to standing up for patients for me it's all about if you stand up for patients and improving patient outcomes indirectly you are standing up for your profession Mm. because one of the problems that's been happening over a long time alex is that people have been looking after their own interests in silos not realizing that actually we're all we're all actually have common ground here we're all actually wanting the same thing yeah. and unfortunately what's happened in the culture of medicine to some degree is that doctors have mistakenly put often put their own interests ahead of the interests of patients mm doesn't mean they don't look after patients, do, but if there's a choice yeah. where they've got to decide between looking after the patient interests and their interests, they look after their interests, but actually it's detrimental to their interests because not helping the patient means that we have more sickness, more chronic disease, more pressure on the system, mm. more mistakes, less morale. One of the most satisfying things that I've found in my journey in this process where I've been shifting the balance and talking about informed consent more and getting people into lifestyle changes is patients start to get genuinely start to get better mm. and there's nothing more satisfying for a doctor
0: than a patient that has that you have impacted their, their lives in a positive way you've got them across the line well thank you for coming thank you for coming to canberra thank you for coming to australia and thank you for sharing all this it's been uh, it's been really really interesting we go on for hours but you've got plenty of things to do and uh, i really uh, really appreciate the chat and looking forward to the adelaide event uh, where i think you're gonna you're gonna pack it out we've got lots of hundreds and hundreds of people coming yeah and um That's the way this is going to be. I've got the view with the uh, social media environment, the mainstream media environment, that these town halls are critical. So um, thank you for taking the time to do it because it only happens if people are willing. Thank you, mate. Appreciate it. Thanks Thanks. for coming. Cheers.